This is Dan Rundy. This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Shannon Green. Shannon is the director of the Human Rights Program here at CSIS. Um, there's a rumor that she's leaving us, which I cannot believe. I'm very sorry to hear that and going on to greener pastures, but has done wonderful and important work here at CSIS. And we wanted to have a conversation about human rights and her career and, and some of the issues that that we're having, that we're going to be dealing with in now and in the future, that relate to human rights and a number of other related issues. So, Shannon, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. So, congratulations. Where are you going? So, I'm going to the Center for Civilians and Conflict, which is a small nonprofit organization based here in Washington. And essentially what they do is to work with governments and militaries and civil society stakeholders to try to prevent civilian harm and civilian casualties um, in military operations and in conflict. So I'm going to be their senior director for programs and help them really expand and build out the suite of international programs that they're doing. So really exciting. There's a logic to, to you ending up in that very interesting and very exciting role given the arc of your career and the issues that you've cared about and worked on for a long time. If I understand correctly, you recently did a careers and development session or you're going to I'm going to, going to, exactly. So I know a lot of folks are curious about how you got started in your career. So could you tell a little bit about how did you end up getting into this business? What, what did, where, did you, where did you grow up and where did you go to school and what, what interested you and how did you end up in your first job? Yep, so I grew up in Georgia in a suburb of Atlanta and from a very young age was really interested in helping people generally. So I was really moved by stories about Tiananmen Square. That was sort Mm. of a formative um, event in my development and seeing that people were literally putting their bodies themselves on the line. In front of that tank, um, that In front of that tank, exactly, to have the kinds of rights and freedoms that we have. And to me, that was very moving and sort of galvanizing. And I just continued to sort of gravitate towards international issues and towards struggles around democracy and human rights. So... I think unlike a lot of people at a very young age, I was sort of on a path. Um, So I went to the University of Georgia and studied history and political science. When I was there, I was really trying to make a decision about whether to focus some of that energy on domestic issues, where certainly, you know, we have a lot of struggles within our own country, um, or to channel my, you know, interest into an international arena. And frankly, decided that um, I love to travel and I'm really interested in other cultures and other places. So I decided to go the international route. So right after um, graduating from undergrad, I came up here to Washington, D.C. and interned with the State Department's Bureau for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Oh, my word. um, And spent a lot of the time there looking at human rights issues in some of the most repressive and conflict-affected environments and really found that it's that nexus of conflict and human rights where the abuses are just sort of the most, you know, grotesque and the most egregious. Um, So I decided, let's, you know, let's do that. Let's work on the hardest cases. Exactly. Um, And I fell in love with D.C. in general and just sort of felt at home here. So I decided to stay and go to American University and get my master's in international peace and conflict resolution with a sub-focus on human rights, and then parlayed that into the Presidential Management Fellowship, which is really, as you know, one of the best um, 
ways to get into the federal government as a civil servant, which can be very challenging. So for me, it was a quite linear path, actually. I was pretty clear-eyed about what I wanted to do and had a passion for public service and just kind of made it happen. So you so you joined, did the, the PMF, the Presidential Management Fellows Program, and joined AID. Yep. And what was your first job at AID? So my first job was in the Strategic Planning Office and the Asia and Near East Bureau, which frankly was not obvious um, because most of my regional focus had been on Sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. Um, I had spent time in Zambia and other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa and then just in my studies. That's kind of what I focused on. And um, I didn't really know what strategic planning was in a government, you know, in a government agency, but that was the opportunity that came along. And I think it's an important lesson, you know, for your listeners, you have to be obviously discerning about the opportunities that you're going to take and to make sure that it's not taking you off of the path that you want to be on. But if you feel like a job is going to give you a foot in the door, you know, really take it because it ends up that that job gave me a bird's eye view of like what USA did. It gave me a really strong understanding of how they do program design, how they do assessments, how they create their strategies upon which, you know, a lot of the interventions are based, how they do their performance monitoring and evaluation. And from that, I was really like, I was in a good position to understand just how the agency worked um, and then could use that in different positions that I pursued afterwards. And the you, how long were you at AID? About 10 years, 11 years, 12 years total, if you count my service at the White House, which I was still an employee of yes. USAID on detail. Where, where were you working when you transitioned to the White House at AID, and how did that happen? Yeah, so I was in the Democracy Human Rights and Governance Center of Excellence, where I had been for about six years, I think, up until that point, and had worked on the Arab Spring and some things that were very high profile, like the Afghanistan elections in 2009. So I had these opportunities to be on these interagency teams, um, which was important in terms of giving me some exposure sort of outside the agency and to senior officials, and then also to see the connections between the kinds of programs that USAID was delivering and policy and sort of where the government overall was trying to take our relations with different countries. Um, and then I was also on this thing called the CENTCOM assessment team where What's that? General Petraeus basically was looking at his entire area of responsibility when he came in as when a he CENTCOM the four-star commander. General, exactly. Which is the Middle East. And- exactly. And just trying to – I think take a really unbiased and fresh look at the region where there's so many like longstanding assumptions about what's possible, what's not possible. So I was one of the USAID reps on that team. So I had all these opportunities to be involved in these things that were sort of like high profile, visible, interagency, connected to policy. Um, And because of that, when Ben Rhodes, who was the deputy national security, one of the deputy national security advisors who was responsible for strategic communications and global engagement, was looking for somebody to build out the president's initiatives in the second term, you know, he started asking around, like, who from USAID is good and could help and understands how to build an initiative 
Um, and somebody that I had worked with on Arab Spring related issues recommended me. And that's sort of how it came to be. So what did you do at the White House? Yep. So as I mentioned, we were going into the second term. The president had signaled very early on that he had this strong interest in building out the United States relations with other countries and with the critical populations within those countries, and that he really wanted this to be sort of a legacy that he left behind, particularly when it came to young leaders in Africa. So the first thing I did was help design and sort of build and create the Young African Leaders Initiative, which brought in the first year and the second year um, 500 amazing, talented, rising stars in Africa to the United States for training and mentorship and internships. And then when they went back to their countries, they got extended um, mentorship and support from the U.S. Embassy and from USAID. And then that was such a success that we ended up doing it um, in Southeast Asia with the Young Southeast Asian Leaders Initiative and then um, in the Western Hemisphere. So I did that. Um, I also was really focused on the issue of civil society, meaning sort of that entire sphere of actors that exist outside of the government. And as you know, Dan, we've talked about this a lot. There is a pervasive crackdown on civil society actors across the world. Over 100 countries have created restrictions on the work of civil society. So in my mind, this was a really um, worrisome trend. And it was problematic, not just because those people were under attack in those countries, but also because it limited our ability as the U.S. government to engage with those individuals. So I got senior officials at the NSC, you know, concerned about this issue and focused on it. And we ended up creating an initiative called Stand with Civil Society, Mm. um, where we brought countries and the private sector and the philanthropic sector together and really put this on a policy agenda. We created new programs and new centers to support civil society actors across the world. Um, And we actually created a presidential memorandum, a policy that said that the U.S. government is going to make it a matter of policy across the interagency to make sure that we are engaging with and supporting civil society actors. When if I say to you human rights, and we've used the term, if I say, what does that mean? I I mean, I know what human rights means. That sounds maybe a little bit of a silly question, but I actually think if someone said to you, what are human rights? What are human rights? And there's obviously the, the agreement or in the 1940s, what is that? So I want to talk to you about what are human rights? And then how have we been involved? How's the U.S. been involved with that? There's this whole conversation in foreign policy about our values and our interests. And so I want to get to that. But I want to start with what is what is human rights and why should we care about? Them? I'll give you two definitions of human rights, one of which is very legalistic, right? Because human rights are set out in numerous universal declarations and, and documents and, documents and covenants, um, as well as a matter of international human rights law, customary law, and um, norms, right? So human rights are a body of universal and alienable rights that every individual has, um, regardless of their color, creed, religion, gender, so on and so forth, and include civil and political rights, as well as social, economic, and cultural rights. Anywhere from you have the right to choose your own leader to you have the right not to be detained for no good reason. You have the right to due process. You also have the right to food, shelter, education, that sort of thing. 
and governments have obligations to their citizens to uphold these rights. So there's a very sort of legalistic definition to me, and I think the way that I've been running the program is also that human rights are just something that are lived, right? That every person should feel like they have agency um, in their life, that they have the right to get the resources that they need to support themselves and their families, that they're not being abused, harassed, threatened on a daily basis, that they can access information that they need to make decisions at a sort of big, broad level in terms of who they want to have governing them as well as where they should send their kids to school. So for me, human rights, yes, are protected by all those international mechanisms, but also are just the safety and security and latitude and agency that somebody feels that they have control over their life and for the most part can pursue the opportunities that they want. I sense, Shannon, that is it fair to say since the 1940s or maybe earlier than that, the U.S. has been a major proponent or major champion of human rights? Is that a fair statement? 100%. 100%. I mean, yeah, I mean, in many ways, the United States has been the leader and creating this whole body of rights, obviously not the only actor, but both through our engagement and international institutions, as well as the example that we've set, absolutely. The U.S. has helped build up this entire body of laws, norms, and rights. Um, people point that to the people, Universal Declaration. Exactly, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Human Rights Council, which used to be um, the Human Rights Committee. Is it the UN? Exactly. Multiple covenants, charter, all these all these different you know, protections that people have. The U.S. The has OSCE. been instrumental, exactly, has been absolutely instrumental in creating that. And it's not just, I mean, the interesting thing is it's not just a function of the U.S. government. Like, U.S. civil society has been hugely important in the development of a human rights culture. over Around the world. Exactly, over the last 50, 70, 60, 70 years. Um, so we have a very vibrant, robust civil society that has engaged, you know, at the UN and New York and Geneva and elsewhere, as well as like in every other country trying to help, number one, educate people and sort of socialize these rights, as well as develop civil society organizations that can hold their governments accountable for upholding their citizens' rights, reporting and documenting abuses of these rights and trying to close the gap between sort of the ideal and the promises that are embedded in international covenants and the reality that most people experience on the ground. What's uh, I mentioned earlier about this this tension between our interests and our values. How should we think about this? I'm sure this came up all the time in your work at the White House. It does, but I think I mean, I've always said that it's a false dichotomy because it is now proven with a multitude of research as well as just our experience that we don't have to choose between our values and our interests in the sense that countries that are democratic, countries that respect the rights of their citizens make the best, most stable partners. So there's an abundance of data showing that democratic countries with a good human rights record are the least likely to get involved in international conflicts as well as internal civil strife. Or just doing bad things. Bad things. Least likely, exactly. Or drugs. Least likely or... to experience terrorist attacks. Least likely to have 
you know, an abundance of criminal gangs and activities. So are the most stable, reliable partners. Like, there's no question that the countries that the U.S. relies on the most, you know, that joins us when we go to war, that votes with with us at the U.N., that's dealing with transnational issues from trafficking in person to Ebola, are democratic countries with a good record on human rights, right? So, like, at that level, I think we can all agree that it is our aspiration to get more countries to that point. I think the other thing is that we've also found that countries that are the opposite of that, so countries that are highly authoritarian where there aren't um, democratic norms that have been sort of institutionalized, where there are a number of human rights offenses and where the government or security forces are harming their own citizens, that those countries are very vulnerable to violent extremism, to terrorist organizations taking root, to being um, the sources or the origin countries for people who are trafficked, for drugs, for weapons, for forced migration. So you can see that we don't want countries to be very unstable. I think the challenge is getting from that understanding to a point where we are supporting more consistently and uniformly human rights. Because what you find is that in the short term, sometimes there are these perceived trade-offs, right? So you might say, you know, there's this authoritarian country and they are jailing journalists and they're cracking down on civil society. And by the way, they just passed this like terrible ally. law yeah. on X, Y, and Z. But they let us have a military base in their country. Exactly. For example. So like are we how critical are we gonna be of that country when we're concerned that that criticism will result in them right, forcing us to close our base or telling us that we're no longer able to access that airstrip or that they're not going to Do fight a trade ex, with us. Yeah, ex-terrorist organization and be a part of their country. I think the reason why I say that's a false dichotomy, though, is because, number one, we do have statistical evidence now that countries that have a lot of deep engagement with the United States that receive a lot of assistance, even when it's given alongside criticism of their human rights record, are still much more likely to cooperate with us on counterterrorism. So there was a study that um, Peter S. Henney did that found that states that received more foreign assistance and more engagement, like I said, even when it came with you know honest with feedback exactly about what they were doing to their own citizenry, they were still more likely to cooperate, number one. Number two, governments have an interest and addressing these issues within their own borders, right? So it's not that they're cooperating with us on counterterrorism, for example, just because it benefits us. It benefits them as well. So I think sometimes we need to have a more nuanced understanding of why governments do the things that they do. Exactly. They're not just doing it because we want them to. They're not just doing it because we haven't criticized them on human rights. They're doing it because they have an interest in doing it. And because of that, I think we have a little more latitude than sometimes we think we do and having honest conversations about their behavior and how that behavior is ultimately undermining their security. Um, And we've seen it time and time again where, you know, we have 
relayed concerns about human rights to allies and partners. Sometimes they get angry, sometimes they push back, but in very few instances has it actually led to a rupture or a decrease in cooperation on the things of interest to the United States. Tell me about, um, we talked earlier about closing civil society space. When, When did this start happening? And is it the flip side of, I mean, I'd say 10 years ago, I think there was a sense that Facebook or cell phones were all a positive thing, and they were going to help encourage and expand civil society and expand human freedom. But may, maybe this is the other side of that coin? Yeah. I mean, this has been going on for about the last 11, 12-ish years. Is this response to the color revolution? So, so – there's a big part of that, right? So there was so much optimism about the role of civil society, and civil society has made its power known um, to governments. I mean, you cannot ignore the voices of citizens. And then all these technologies came along that allowed people to communicate more easily than ever before, to organize, to publicize when, you know, governments were doing really bad things and sometimes to do it in a really visceral way using video, audio, so on and so forth. And I think the backlash is a result of governments realizing that There's a lot of power um, that civil society has now, and there's a lot of power that comes from them having access to these technologies and these platforms. And when they saw what happened in the Arab Spring, when they saw what happened in the color revolution, this is like Georgia and Ukraine. Right, exactly. They realized, like, whoa, you know, civil society has the ability to topple governments and we have to do something about this like we have to tighten the screws we have to figure out how to constrain the operation of the citizenry and make it much more difficult for them to organize to protest to expose um, sort of the malfeasance that's endemic within certain governments or within security forces so on and so forth so I do think in some ways, the backlash is a result of the success of civil society um, and sort of the growth of civil society as a sector, particularly in the 90s. Um, and governments, there's some really interesting um, data and studies that one of my colleagues, Andrea Kendall Taylor, has done. She's an affiliate with CSIS. And it essentially shows that Governments used to exit, authoritarian governments used to exit power predominantly through coups, so inner circle kinds of things. So the way that they would mitigate that was to have certain protection strategies, you know, to make sure that they weren't reliant on just one security force. They had multiple, you know, different security forces protecting them. They rotated elites, you know, in and out of offices, that sort of thing. So they had coup-proofing strategies. Now, um, there is a sharply increased number of authoritarian governments who are exiting power through these popular popular movements, these kind of citizen-led protest movements. And so that has them scared. So this Um, is like the alternative. This is their equivalent of coup-proofing. Exactly. Is is popular uprising-proofing. Exactly. Putting the screws to civil society. Um, Are there ways in which we can – how do we counter this? Yeah, so that's actually most of the, you know, I've been here for 
almost three years, um, most of the time has been focused on trying to develop strategies and tactics to counter it. Um, there are a number of things. Number one, civil society organizations themselves are thinking really differently about how they organize themselves um, because what we found is, you know, governments have found really sophisticated ways of um, making it difficult for civil society organizations to operate. So, for example, they've made it difficult for organizations to register or they've passed laws that require organizations to register on an annual basis, which gives the government an opportunity every single year to deregister the organization. Or they require the organization um, to have a representative of the government sit on their board. So there's all these insidious mechanisms. So so civil society organizations are starting to experiment with different modalities. I wrote a whole paper on this. Um, Whether it be foregoing kind of an official registration status with all of the things that that comes with to being more of a loosely organized movement. A network. A network or um, being a membership-based organization. So instead of relying on money coming in from the outside, which governments like Russia and Ethiopia exactly have created laws to restrict local organizations' abilities to get, get money, money from, from abroad. Say, AID or from exactly. Europe. So they're saying, okay, well, if we're not going to be able to access that foreign funding anymore, how can we survive? So some organizations are becoming membership-based organizations. So people have to pay a small fee in order to be a part of this organization and to have that organization representing their interest. Others are becoming kind of these social enterprise models mm-hmm. where they're organizing themselves more as a business and they provide a service. It might be they have some particular capacity on public relations issues. So they have a for-profit arm where they're providing public relations services and they then channel that money into their nonprofit activities. So they're adopting different organizational strategies. That's number one. Two, um, organizations are realizing that part of their vulnerability is because they didn't, they neglected to build robust, diverse constituencies Mm. within their own countries. So one of the criticisms of human rights organizations is that they're very elitist, elitist, they're based in capitals, you know, they're more kind of attuned and connected to international actors and bodies than they are to their own population. There have been a number of surveys that have shown that people have pretty favorable opinions of human rights organizations and yet have had zero contact with the human rights organization, never been asked to participate in a campaign, never been asked to contribute to the organization, never been asked to volunteer with the organization. So a lot of human rights organizations are learning if they want to survive, they need to have broader public support because what's been happening is the government will come after these organizations and they'll try to delegitimize them in the state run press and people and people are like "Eh, you know there's really no public there's no response there's no public response there's no if they have 50,000 members exactly 100,000 members exactly 300,000 members that's a different conversation exactly so that's one of the response strategies is like okay we really need to build up public support and a third which is something that the U.S. government I think has been ahead of the curve on 
is there are just certain ways of doing business that civil society organizations are adopting when it comes to their cybersecurity, digital security, making sure that they are thinking about their physical protection, their office, you know, sort of the office configuration where they are, how they keep their files, how they communicate with one another, because a lot of that is subject to surveillance. And sometimes these offices are raided. And so they have to be really mindful now, I think, of how they store their data, how they store their information, where they go, who they talk to. So it sort of puts the burden on civil society, I think, to be hyper aware and sensitive, which again is one of the tactics because that then diverts them from their mission. Um, But it's important. It's increasingly important in this day and age. There are two other things I wanted to cover with you. You were the leader of a really important commission on countering violent extremism. What were your takeaways from that process? And is there ever going to be an end, in our lifetime, is there going to be an end to violent extremism, if I can put it that way? And what does an end to violent extremism look like? Maybe that's, we can put that a little bit in the parking lot, but talk a little bit about the commission and some of the findings, and then just think a little bit further out, like, can my grandkids hope for some future where we don't have, they don't have that hanging over their heads? Yeah. So the commission was about a year-long process um, that was co-chaired by Leon Panetta and Tony Blair. And we had 25 other leaders from the private sector, from civil society, from the religious community, from social media companies, um, former national security officials, just really a bipartisan, high-level, thoughtful group of people. So one of my big takeaways is as sensitive and polarizing and controversial as conversations around countering violent extremism can be, including what terminology you use, um, it is possible to have a strategy that gains bipartisan support across different sectors, because we did. And it was difficult, but it is possible. Um, the other big takeaway, and you know, I think most, most people, including very high-level military officials, agree, our focus has so heavily been weighted on the hard kinetic. power, kinetic law enforcement approach, which has worked by and large. I mean, it has worked in preventing another huge, complex attack like we saw on September 11th. But it hasn't stopped people from being radicalized and recruited. Lone wolf. Exactly. And it certainly um, hasn't prevented the transnational and global spread of terrorism. So one of the very high-level three-star generals um, that we interviewed in the process, and I won't name him because I don't remember if it was on the record or off the record, but, you know, he basically said, if you want to know whether we're succeeding, despite the billions and billions of dollars that we have poured into counterterrorism, all you have to do is look at a map. If you look at a map on September 11th of where there were active terrorist networks that had sort of a capability of planning and plotting an attack. It was really localized to Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, but could pretty much, there were a couple of dots on the map, right? Middle East, South Asia. If you look at the map now, which we did produce, CSIS did produce as part of this commission, it is everywhere. There are virtually no countries that have been immune from Um, transnational terrorism. So the strategy of just relying on military force, intelligence, and law enforcement is not working. 
So one of the big takeaways was just that we need a huge commensurate effort to prevent violent extremism sort of on the soft power side. So using our messaging, using our development programs, using our moral authority. But the third and probably biggest takeaway was that government has an enabling role that it needs to play in countering violent extremism and creating the conditions for civil society to do the work on their front lines and making sure that it's not contributing to the problem by cracking down on, you know, citizenry and alienating certain parts of the population, that sort of thing. But the most effective interventions are really coming from community-based actors, teachers, social workers, religious leaders, parents, sisters, uncles, cousins, um, so that this is something that is very sort of locally led and needs to be civil society led. And we need a massive investment in those kinds of approaches. There's a lot more in the, you know, 80 page report and the podcast series that went alongside of it. But I would say those are the three major takeaways. In terms of will we ever see an end to violent extremism? I mean, I think there's always going to be extremism. I mean, sort of by definition, that means that they, you know, that opinion, ideas are sort of gravitate towards the center, but there are always going to be people who hold ideas that are on the fringes, right? And that's going to vary culture to culture. Like what might be considered extreme in one place is going to be mainstream in another place. So I don't think that you're ever going to not have people on either end of the spectrum that have extreme views and are willing to use violence to advance those views. But what I do think is that you can make it much less of a global threatening phenomenon. And what I mean is, I think you can get to a point where you sort of diminish the pool of people that are willing to engage in violence in order to advance their ideological agenda. And I think you get there, number one, by delegitimizing the use of violence to do that. Two, giving people other outlets. I mean, part of what we found was that people are very misguided, but they're trying to have a meaningful impact on the world, on conditions that they find to be, you know, abhorrent or unfair, um, or in some cases, uh, you know, in certain localities are just looking for something to do um, and to be a part of. So, you know, through the work that you do and development agencies do, finding meaningful outlets for people to channel that energy. And then I think three... You and I, I think, have talked about this. There has not been enough emphasis at a very young age in the education system on, like, what does it mean to be a citizen in a democratic country and to contribute and to have a positive impact on your community, right? We have no mandated civics courses within the United States anymore. And it's the same for a lot of countries. And I think part of this is just inculcating and young people at a very young age that it's okay to hold different points of view. That doesn't make somebody illegitimate. That doesn't make somebody worthy of harm or killing just because they have different opinions than you. I think we really need to be teaching our kids that there is value in diversity, that there's value in being tolerant, that 
even if you don't agree with somebody, that doesn't make them bad or wrong or worthy of harm. And I think that's what we have to neutralize is this idea that if somebody's different, then somehow that legitimizes hurting them, killing them. Um, So I think you can start to diffuse that a little bit. And what that would look like was just kind of tamping down on the scale and scope of the threat so that it's much more manageable. I agree with everything you just said. Um, I want to just, you talked a little bit about um, messaging and we're the home of Coca-Cola and American brands and we we invented Madison Avenue. Um, You've done a number of things in your time here around public diplomacy. And I think we have struggled in the United States on messaging overseas. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Because I know that was one of the things in your portfolio at the White House. House. Yes, it was. Oh, it's just so difficult. I would say, like, <laughs> that's why, probably why, we, why, why, is, it, why is, is it so difficult? Yeah, why is it so difficult? If we can do Coca-Cola or we can do Google, we have the best brands in the world as the United States and the private sector. Why is it so hard for us as the U.S. public sector but I think that's exactly because we're the U.S. They're the public US government, sector. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think, number one, the U.S. government is never going to be the most authentic or credible messenger for most issues, right? Like trust in what the U.S. government says is going to be pretty low. So that's number one. That's a given. Number two, because of bureaucracy and all the other things, it's so difficult for the government to be as nimble as it needs to be on messaging. We're also inhibited in terms of the data that we can gather and analyze in order to create those messages that are going to resonate. Exactly. That are going to resonate with certain audiences. Whereas, as you know, the private, you know, companies don't have some of the same barriers. They can use the data that they're accumulating in order to understand what people's preferences are. Da, da, da. Some of that kind of creeps me out. I mean, like, <laughs> get these well, emails. So and... Right, but what you're seeing is geared towards you, towards your interests, what you have expressed that you like. Super duper micro-targeting. Exactly. The U.S. government is not in a position to do that, which I think there are good reasons for yeah, that. Good reasons for that. Exactly. So, I mean, I think the best thing that the U.S. has done and This was sort of a big shift within the second term of the Obama administration was to focus less on like our messaging, our words, our products, and to think about, okay, how can the U.S. government support those credible actors and voices who already exist out there? Um, So, for example, there might be somebody that has a lot of reach into a certain community that you want to reach um so for civil society so for example in the central african republic um when the war started the civil war started um to break out and people were being killed on both sides it wasn't like okay the u.s government is going to go into these communities and tell those people like stop you know stop committing these violent acts against one another but we were like okay who are the key influencers within these communities that we're trying to reach And how do we support them in getting their message out? Similarly, the social media companies are working with civil society organizations to help them and just individual actors, bloggers, journalists, whatnot, to say, okay, you've got this really cool message, um, but we're going to help you package it in a way that is going to engage your audience um, so that you have more visibility, more reach, and that they keep coming back. So I think that's really the shift. It's 
about us using our resources, our convening power um, to support those authentic, credible voices and then just getting out of the way a little bit. Let me try. Let me just push a little bit further because I think that's a great strategy. What if I said, well, should the U.S. support reformist voices in the Islamic world? Yes. Are we? Are we equipped to do it? Like, are we equipped to figure out? And there's been some debates about this, whether we should. I mean, I think we should. And we work with imams and things like health messaging and work yeah. with religious group, Christian groups and Jewish groups, et cetera. So it shouldn't be that crazy a thing. It should, we should be able to do it. Yeah, we do. I mean, there's been exchange programs, for example, bringing religious leaders of all stripes from all over the world to the United States to engage with officials from the tech sector, from Mm. public relations sector, to help them kind of craft messages and products that are going to help them reach more people. I think the challenge is doing so in a way that's not going to taint them. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, that's the trick, right? And my, my thinking has always been, and this goes more broadly, not just to, you know, religious actors, but civil society human rights actors. defenders yeah, civil society organizations saying you're you're on the you're on the payroll of the yankees exactly i have always maintained the position that we should make the resources and the support available but that each of those individuals and organizations is going to have to decide based on their understanding of the risks and their understanding of their own environment whether it is more helpful or harmful to them yep. to take that assistance it's not t- for us, though, I think, call. to decide, oh, we're just not going to make it available because it might result in them getting attacked or it might result in them. That's their call. Re- exactly. It's their call. I've always held that position that. because they're in a better position to know what they need and what will be beneficial. So just make it available, put it out there, and then let them decide. There's a lot of challenges in the world. But tell me, just as a closing question for you, what are you optimistic about in the human rights world? Is there anything, what is making you, I know there's lots of stuff to be down about. There's lots of challenges, and you spend a lot of time pushing back against, professionally, against a lot of real challenges in the world and difficulties. But there have got to be some things that make you feel like, okay, there's, there's some things that get you up in the morning that's okay. These are, there's some happy things. Is it either young the way young people are being creative and responding to challenges? Is it emerging technologies? Is it your hope for American civil society being a force of good in the world? Yeah. There's got to be something that you say. <laughs> I mean, this is a because this is these are a challenging set of issues, and at the same time, I do think I do think it's fair to say, are we in a freer world than 50 exactly. years ago? We're in a better place. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah. I mean, like. The last decade has been really difficult. Um, it's and been it's kind of a human rights recession. It's been a recession, a democratic recession. There have been a lot of setbacks, the resurgence yeah. of authoritarianism, some really horrific atrocities yeah. and abuses committed and a lack of accountability for those. But if you look at sort of the grander scope, you look back 50 years, we are in a much better place quantitatively, we're in a better place. There are more people who are living in democratic societies. There are more people who are able to access their rights. There are more people who are going to school. There are more people who have access to health care. There are more people who have been lifted out of poverty. Just like objectively, things have gotten better. I would also say that, you know, there has been this whole body of norms that like it or not, not you and I, but 
whether authoritarian governments like it or not, they're a real thing. They're a real thing, and they have been institutionalized, and they have been accepted, and governments, at the very least, have to pay lip service to them and come up at the Human Rights Council for a universal periodic review on an occasional basis and have to answer to why they're not adhering to those standards, right? Or if right? you do some terrible atrocity, you may get some kind of a search warrant out for your arrest, uh, arrest warrant for, your, for you from Interpol through the that's ICC, right. Exactly. right? That's like a real thing. Yeah, that didn't exist 20 thing. years ago. So, I mean, I think like big picture, things are better than they were. And then the other thing that gives me hope is just you go out and meet these civil society actors, journalists, human rights defenders all over the world and you cannot help but be inspired by them. I mean, these are people who are taking tremendous risks and really threatening circumstances because they believe in having a freer, more democratic, more rights-respecting country, and they're not going anywhere. Even, you know, obviously there's been a lot of disappointment about the Arab Spring and what that has resulted in, but you'll talk to civil society actors across the Middle East, and they'll say, we're not we're not going back into that box. So there's definitely been an awakening and there has been a burgeoning of civil society all over the world and people are activated. And I don't think that that's something that you can turn off. Shannon, thanks for everything. It's been great working with you. It's not goodbye. It's see you next week. Exactly. (laughs) Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you.